Alright, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be, uh, finishing up chapter 2 this morning in a sermon called Sancta Dei Civitas, uh, which is Latin for Holy Community of God. Holy Community of God. We'll finish up chapter 2 today, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, looking at verse 42 to 47. Uh, I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and he uh, was asking me about the church, because <clears throat> he was interested in, in coming and setting up a booth, setting up a booth and, and doing some advertising, uh, and getting to know some people, things like that, for a Christian organization in the area. Uh, he had just been at a church um, with, that runs like 4,000 people on a weekend, um, so there's a few of them, right, within a drive from here. I mean, we're surrounded by them a little bit, uh, and so he was, he was asking about the church. He was like, so you pastor church? I was like, yeah. Uh, and I could, I could see where it's coming, so I started to kind of chuckle, and, and he, uh, he's like, so y'all, I heard y'all two services, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we have two services. And uh, he's like, so what do y'all run? Like, what do y'all run in a service? I'm like, well, on a good Sunday, right, on a, where the stars align, uh, we'll, we'll run about 15 in the first service and maybe 45, 50 second service. So we'll, I mean, we'll average out probably 65 on most Sundays. Um, and he was just kind of making mental notes, right? And so he keeps talking, and, and he comes back, and he's like, so let me, let me just confirm, right? You're running about 1,500 in the morning, and then in your second service, about 4,000. I'm like, no, 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 be careful. Don't do a rounding error there, okay? 15. I was like, say that with me, 15. Not 1,500, okay? Uh, and so, I mean, it can be hard to kind of get out of uh, kind of the big church kind of idea. Uh, so, like, I mean, I, and I grew up in this this arena, this situation, um, 15 people to a church that runs like 40,000 is not like a service, right? That's a accident, like at the store, right? <laughs> 15 of you run into each other at the store. I mean, it's a coincidence, not a, a service does it make. Um, and so, I mean, we would be what you would consider a small church, uh, <laughs> a small, a small church. Um, we're, we're in the, the, the end of Acts chapter 2, and, and what Luke is going to do for us is he's going to um, take a step back. A lot has happened, and he's going to breathe for a second and kind of take a, a, a mental image of what has happened, what has occurred, the state of the world after all that he's described for us so far. So if you remember uh, in the first four weeks of our series here, um, Jesus was teaching after his resurrection. He then ascended into heaven. Um, the Holy Spirit poured out on the believers. Peter gets up and preaches, and 3,000 people are saved and added to their group of 120. Now, I ran the math. Math is not my strong point, so I double-checked with some people who do know math. Um, 120 to then 3,120 is 2,500% growth. Okay, so pretty intense growth um, in one kind of moment after one sermon. So I also ran the numbers. If proportionally that happened to you and I, to FC Cube, okay, that would mean we would go from 65 um, today to next week running about 1,700 uh, people, um, which if we wanted to say we could do 150 people in a service, the theory we have not tested out, okay? Uh, but if we wanted to say we could run 150 in a service, that would mean next week we would need to have 12 services uh, to accommodate all the people that have been added to us if we're growing proportionally to the church in the book of Acts. I can say with confidence, I mean, my stomach is upset just thinking about that. My palms are sweating, right? It makes me nervous. Um, we talk uh, as leadership here about growing and reaching out and those type of things. In fact, um, open invitation, right, at our board meeting tomorrow night, that's one of the things we're going to be discussing, some, some ways that we can intentionally push towards growing and reaching out uh, over this next year. So open invitation. Uh, we'd like all of you there uh, to hear your ideas. Um, so we talk about growing and things like that. Um, and I always want to kind of remind myself and others that there are just as many problems on the other side of the grass, uh, on the other side of the fence, right? Um, 
if we like exploded to 1,700 people next week, I mean, I think my first action would be to humbly resign as your pastor, right? I would take the record tied with Peter for church growth in one kind of week, okay? And I would bow out. That's just a lot of problems. I mean, can you, could you, I mean, just for a second, imagine the chaos, okay? Imagine the chaos next week if we tried to run almost 2,000 people in here. Um, and so this is what's happened to the early church. They have exploded, and we'll see in not too long, a few chapters from now, Problems are going to come because of this, all right? You get this kind of fast growth, and there's lots of situations come up you weren't prepared for, and you have to deal with uh, very quickly and strategically. Um, So all this has happened so far in a very short amount of time in the book of Acts. And so what Luke is going to do, he does this a few times at the beginning of his his book here, is he's going to slow down, he's going to breathe, and he's going to say, let's see where we are. Let's see where we are after what's just happened, okay? And so we'll, we'll look at this passage here. We'll pick it up in verse 42. Um, and we're going to kind of focus on two, two ideas here. You see them in your worship guide. The first is the necessity of the church, um, or maybe the question, why is there a church? And then the second is the life of the church, or what is the church, okay? So read with me, um, Acts chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 42. And they, um, the 3,120... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we we have this picture here of the life of the early church, um, this life that um, is held in common. And so these, these people are baptized. You have, again, this huge explosion of growth. And then Luke paints a picture of what their day-to-day life looked like. And it was a life that consisted of togetherness. It was a life that consisted, notice, on all the different ways that they flocked together, that they now, um, in a sense, were joined in with a new community. And so I want to spend maybe most of our time this morning talking about what I think is one of the hardest things for you and I to really wrap our minds around in the world that we live in, which is, why is there a church? Is it necessary for there to be a church? I want you to notice in this passage how natural it seems that they live life this way. Peter doesn't command them. Peter doesn't guilt trip them. Peter doesn't threaten them. If anything, I mean, they're meeting together day after day. This is a daily type thing in the temple, in their homes. If anything, Peter can't get them to stay away from each other. This faith that they have received through repentance and baptism and the Holy Spirit seems to naturally result in them coming together as a community to where we might talk about, like the early church fathers and theologians throughout the the years, the necessity of there being a church. The fact that Christian faith, it seems, demands Christian community. Christian faith demands Christian community. Um, John Calvin, uh, one of the reformers, had a, a quote that he kind of rips from earlier church fathers that goes like this. If the church, um, or if God is our father, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. 
If God is our father, then the church is our mother. Now, he'll also go on to say, um, the church is a whore, but she's my mother, right? I'm anticipating people saying, well, the church is very messed up, right? And he's going, well, yeah, let's acknowledge she has problems, but that doesn't mean we're not related, right? That doesn't mean we're not fundamentally joined together in a way that we can't separate even if we wanted. So he says, if God's our father, the church is our mother, almost in a sense like a newborn baby wouldn't think about wanting to live on its own without its mother. It wouldn't be desirable. It wouldn't be something they wanted or should expect or would expect good results from. The early church... um, This has commonly come to you and I as Protestants from kind of Roman Catholic uh, ideas and and teachings, but it goes far past that. The early church had different axioms and sayings that went something like this. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Again, I think when most of us hear that, we think of the Roman Catholic kind of popes, right? Vatican, outside the Roman Catholic church, there is no salvation. They actually take that, though, from very early on, the church fathers. Almost all of them had a a various phrase or teaching like this. It's one of the most misunderstood teachings that's come to us, okay? Um, We kind of react to it as Protestants. We get nervous. uh, We don't really like it. And we want to go, no, no, no. Um, I mean, it's just faith alone, right? Saved through grace by faith alone. You don't need the church um, to mediate this for you. Kind of a reaction to... Um, these Roman Catholic maybe um, indulgences in the um, Reformation period. Um, But what they're getting at here is this idea that you find all the way back in the New Testament, which is it seems like faith goes together with community in a way that's almost inseparable, in a way that you almost can't rip apart. So I've gotten this question. We we live in a a, a world, um, particularly in our kind of flavor of Christianity, um, where it's you might hear things like this: "I like Jesus, but I don't like the church." Uh, I like Jesus, I don't like his people. Right? Uh, it's not hard to to figure out where that's coming from, right? I, I'm pretty sure I've said from the pulpit before. Sometimes I'd rather be around non-believers than believers. Sometimes the pretentiousness and over-spirituality of believers just really rubs me the wrong way, and it exhausts me. And I want to sit down with someone who uses bad words and is honest, right? And it's just refreshing to my soul. Um, and, and so we, there, if you uh, pay attention to this kind of stuff, not too long ago, there was a video floating around the interweb, right? The internet, uh, and it said, it was a spoken word poem that says, I love Jesus, but I hate religion, or why I hate religion and love Jesus. Um, and as much as, as the, the author means religion as like hypocrisy, I mean, everyone would agree with that. Um, and as much as he means the church, I think he's at serious odds with the scriptures and with most of um, the New Testament, um, where you can't kind of imagine faith without a community. And there's lots of reasons for this. I want us to kind of explore this. I think it's hard for us to really get. We live in an age um, that does not necessarily feel comfortable with that kind of idea. But I do think for you and I as Christians, we need to recover this corporate identity. We need to learn again what it means to be a part of a people. To be a part of a people who have a story, who have a past, who have a future, who have obligations to each other, and who are called to do things together. Um, So I've been asked before, right, can you be a Christian without being part of a church? I think the question is a silly question. To me, it sounds like this question. Does a husband have to live with his wife? It's just a silly, it's a silly type of question, right? So you could, if you wanted to, answer that. 
you could probably go both ways. You could argue, well, to be a husband means you have to do this type of thing and this type of thing, so you probably need to live with your wife. Or you could kind of play devil's advocate, right, and be like, well, you could kind of fulfill some husband duties, right, and not necessarily have to live to each other. So you could work it out and answer it, but at the end of the day, it's just kind of silly because the very status of being a husband implies a certain relationship. And in a sense, once you ask that question, you're looking for a loophole. You're looking for something that Calvin would say is not desirable. It not, it's not to be expected. If God's your father, the church is your mother. That's where faith grows. That's where faith flourishes. That's where it happens. I mean, notice in the text, if you go back up to verse 40, after Peter's sermon, he tells them, remember our diagram last week, repent, put your faith in Christ, be baptized, and then receive the spirit and forgiveness of your sins. He then, in other words, verse 40, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. You and I, whether we like it or not, are corporate creatures. We're community people. We find our identity, our story, our meaning, our purpose in community. The American slash Western individual project of, of individualism has failed. There are countless studies on this, right? You don't have to, to really search far and wide for this. Individualism leads to the shattering, the fracturing of families, of communities, and of individuals. And so you, you get unhealthy communities. Um, I just read an article two days ago about um, shut-ins, uh, who, widows maybe, who, who live by themselves, who, if you, the sociologists went in and studied them, found their community in um, kind of online uh, sales shows um, and kind of infomercials. And, and so they spoke about the, the people selling the products as if they were dear friends. And they knew the regular callers and things like that. Because we find our meaning in community, whether we want to or not. And there's healthy ways and unhealthy ways for that to happen. Peter's saying, get out of this group of people who are headed toward destruction and be brought into a group of people who are being formed and shaped and redeemed by God himself. The Christian community is hand-in-hand hand with faith. You're baptized into a family, into a people group that goes back all the way to Genesis 12 with God's promise to Abraham to create a multi-ethnic people who will be saved and redeemed. So if we were to think through, um, we have it on our worship night, a couple ways that the community is vital. That the Christian community, um, when we say church, we need to be careful. Um, the word, Greek word ekklesia means called out. The called out ones. It's referring to people primarily, not buildings, not services, that type of thing. The called out ones. Why is that community? Why are these people coming together, teaching each other, having fellowship, breaking bread, praying, going to the temple, going to their homes, praising God together? Why is that necessary for faith? Why is that the place where we should expect faith to be and to grow and to flourish? Well, I have three down here in, in um, light of kind of our triune God, the Trinity, um, as we understand it. The first is it's vital to the mission of God, the Father. It's vital to the mission. God is a missional God. From the very beginning, he's had a purpose. From Genesis 12, he has been on a mission to redeem and remake the world. And part of that mission, a glorious and mysterious part, is the people that he has called to bless all the families of the earth. And so the church is called to herald the good news, to, to go pronounce and proclaim the gospel. Who is telling these people about the resurrection of Jesus? None other than Peter, the leader of the church. 
God, in a sense, has delegated this to the church. And so they herald the good news and they work for justice and peace and beauty in the world around them. They go into dark places and redeem them. They fight and speak for the voiceless. They clothe the naked and they feed the hungry. The church joins God on his mission. This is what we mean when we're the body of Christ. Not just that we all belong together, but that Christ is working through us. And now the moment when a community fractures, the mission is hindered. You and I, just like a body, work better together than apart. A hand does not work very well as a hand by itself. An eye does not work very well by itself. But Ephesians 4 tells us when they're all working together, it's like the church is this living organism that moves and works and redeems and joins God on his mission. So the church is vital to the mission of God. The church is also vital to the witness of Jesus. He, he says this in Acts 1, if you'll remember. He says to the 12, you will be my witnesses. You will, in a sense, by your existence, point towards the reality of what I've done. Um, the community will testify to the truth of Jesus' victory. Much of what Jesus accomplishes is in its very nature communal, relational, could not exist without relationships that flourish. Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples. The world will know the victory that I've won by your love for one another. It's interesting that Jesus sends out the earliest missionaries in the Gospel of Luke in pairs of two. Maybe Jesus is already indicating it's hard to witness about the kingdom unless people can watch the kingdom. Unless people can see how I love and how I forgive and how I relate and how I serve and how I live with somebody else. It's inherent to the witness. Um, So we've said before in the past, our ethics, our way of life, the fact that you and I can disagree and forgive is a very sign. It is in itself a sign that the powers that have held the world in darkness are being broken. The fact that there's a multi-ethnic group that loves and serves each other, that has no regard for socio-economic divisions, has no regard for gender divisions or age divisions or racial divisions, is a sign and a powerful message to the world and to the darkest powers that their reign has been broken and that there is a new one who reigns and who will one day Fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. It's a witness in and of itself. And then the last um, way that the community is vital, and maybe the most important, would be the work of the Spirit. The Spirit given to believers to lead them in truth, to lead them in conviction, to lead them in holiness. The Spirit given to provide the believers with the sense and provision of God's power and His presence, His energy. Living like a Christian is one of the hardest, if not most impossible, things to do. If we're really honest with ourselves, if what you mean by being a Christian is showing up to church, it's not that hard. If what you mean by being a Christian is being a polite person, it's not too hard. I mean, unless you're just, you just have this real abrasive personality, right? But if what you mean by being a Christian is Sermon on the Mount type stuff, Loving your enemies, praying, sharing your resources, living in humility and service to other people, becoming a slave, 
giving up your dreams for Jesus' dreams, then, then I would suggest there's a few things harder. It's very hard for a person who's been conditioned and learned how to live in the midst of a crooked generation to now learn how to live as one who is a member of God's family. I mean, it's a testimony of, I believe, everyone in here that this does not happen overnight. It'd be beautiful if it did, right? The Spirit's inside of us, bam, done. No more problems. That's not how it, it goes. I would suggest that learning to live like a Christian functions a lot like learning to speak a language. Functions a lot like learning how to speak a language. So when my brother was born, I was 12 years old, and, and it was just a really cool experience because I could see him grow up uh, in front of me. I can remember the different stages he went through, that type of thing. And uh, I can remember when he was maybe one, one and a half, maybe up to two, um, and he, he didn't quite have like a vocabulary yet. I mean, he was saying a few words, he'd got some very simple sentences. But if you made him upset, um, so maybe like terrible twos type thing, right? If you made him upset, I mean, he would rip into this fury, okay? And, and it's kind of been this joke in our family because he would go to this spot in the living room. And like if you took something away from him or told him no, whatever, um, he would go to the spot in the living room and he would just stand there and scream for 15 minutes at a time. And it was unintelligible. I mean, it was just gibberish, right? And he's screaming. And the joke was always that if we only knew what he was meaning in his mind, we would be so offended and so horrified. I mean, you could see the hate in his eyes. It had to have been the most vile things that a human person can spew, right? But he didn't have the words to kind of form the insults uh, and the slights um, and things like that. Um, and over time, um, my brother learns how to speak English. And he, he learns not by sitting down with a grammar book, and learning the rules of verbs and nouns and pronouns and the rules of grammar, he doesn't learn by memorizing vocab words. Not once do we give him note cards with words on them. He learned by trial and error. He learned by watching us speak. He learned by speaking with us, seeing how we reacted to it. And I kid you not, by the time he's 12, he's speaking, if he wanted to be objective, on a level that shows an expert mastery of the language of English. As a language person who, who has tried to learn two other languages, um, it's not an easy thing. Let me tell you this if, if you're not aware. English is one of the most difficult languages to learn that exist. Um, we have one of the grumpiest languages, right? The rules tend to disappear very quickly in English. Um, so you talk to someone who's trying to make English their first language after not growing up speaking English, and they will tell you how frustrated they are. Because we all seem to have these unwritten rules that we follow that it's, it's hard to do, right, without just growing up in it. So learning, Michelle can, can back me up on this. She's done Hebrew, um, and I think she's doing Greek and some other languages on her own right now. Um, learning to, to speak another language makes you learn all the rules of your own language. I had no idea what a participle was until I tried to learn a Greek participle. Had to go, what is that? Um, you and I, on a daily basis today, I guarantee you, are using advanced rules of grammar. Advanced. You could not even spell the words that you are following. And you're doing it like second nature. Not because you sat down and memorized it. Because you grew up in a family. Because you watched other people speak. Because you spoke back to them. Because you saw what did not work and what did work. And you grew up to have a mastery of the language. I think that life, or living life like a Christian, works a lot like that. 
we've found in a hard way, by the hard way, um, for some of us, that you can't read your way into obedience. You can't go to a conference into obedience. All of those things have times and places, right? I've said this before. You don't learn how to pray by reading a book on prayer. You don't learn how to pray by writing down one of Pastor Mike's awesome points about prayer. You learn how to pray by praying with other people. You learn how to pray by listening to others pray. You learn how to pray by praying for other people. You don't learn how to read your Bible by reading a book on how to read your Bible. You learn by doing it. You learn by watching other people do it. It's like speaking a language. We would say that the work of the Spirit, true transformation, occurs in the context of community. It occurs in the context of community. It would be hard to imagine. Just like a, a newborn baby saying, I need my mother. This is not what you would desire. If it could happen, this is not what you would want. This is not what you would plan for, for a newborn. To try to throw them out into the world and have them figure things out on their own. No, there's a community that lets faith flourish. That lets life be found. This is what the church fathers meant when they said there's no salvation outside the church. They were saying this is where faith belongs. This is what faith demands. A group of people who live life together like we see in Acts chapter 2. And so they devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Every day they're together. seems like you can't get them away from each other. And it was as natural as breathing to these people. The church is necessary. Why is the church? Well, because it seems to be the outworking, by definition, of faith. Now, two big dangers, the two great enemies for community, um, Christian community in our time, would be first, individualism. Individualism, which would place me over we, okay? Um, which would place my relationship with Jesus over our relationship with Jesus, which would place um, my um, personal spiritual journey over our personal spiritual journey. Um, individualism has a way of fracturing relationships, fracturing growth, things of that nature. The second one um, goes hand in hand, uh, consumerism. We live in a consumeristic world, all right? You go to a restaurant and you can have it your way. You don't have it your way, you send it back and get it done right. You don't wait for things, you don't compromise. I'm paying for this. This is going to be done my way. I'm a consumer. You will feed me. Be scared that we use that language with the church. Were you fed today? It scares me. That makes me uncomfortable. That makes me think we might be taking steps down the wrong way of viewing the community. I was reading an article this week that, that said the moment people talk about what they got out of a sermon, as if that's what makes a sermon a sermon, you have misunderstood. He suggested maybe the better way to judge a sermon is, were you frightened? <laughs> did you get a picture of God that you did not have walking in? That then will lead through and bleed into your everyday life and into your community, your small group of friends that you walk with very closely. A lot of people treat the church um, like an ecclesiological buffet. Um, so, so an all-you-can-eat, right? And so I like this, and I like this, and I like this, and I like this. This is why I'm, I'm scared of, just not of the people, right? I'm not scared of them, but I'm scared of this idea um, that, that lies behind obsessive or compulsive church shopping or church hopping. 
because you're looking for something to, to feed you. And the moment that starts happening, the moment that takes root, you're close to maybe missing out on joining in the mission of God, of testifying to the truth of Jesus, and of allowing the Spirit to do the hard, dirty, day-to-day work in your life. We've mentioned before there's something about week-in and week-out community liturgy, praying together that sets you on a course that will lead you into the Spirit's arms. But as a man by himself, an island, I think you are in danger of missing out on the very place where faith was meant to live, where it was meant to flourish. And I don't think you have to look far in our community to find such results. So notice, I mean, this is, this is kind of the unwritten thing that I can't help but notice here. They're, they're baptized, and they're immediately associated with the community, the city, the polis, where we get our word political, the city on the hill, according to Jesus, the community that gathers and advances the gospel together. Now, if we read through, um, you'll see kind of these landmarks of the church. So we'll, we'll talk for a minute about the life of the church, or what is the church. There's some things that seem characteristic of the church here. Um, you look in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So from very early on, the church was a learning church. They were a church that were increasing their knowledge, that were having their worldview shaped by the truths of the gospel. The danger if we do not do this is that we will revert to our old ways of thinking and living. I'm a believer in the idea that our thinking leads our feelings, which leads our actions. Um, there have been some not too long ago who reversed that, right? And would want to put our thinking... Um, farther away in that, that um, kind of train of events. I think thinking comes first. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you see the world differently, you then interact with the world differently. Our minds are transformed. So the early church is a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what they had to share about Jesus' life and his teaching and the truths of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. They were a loving church. They were a learning church. They were a loving church. They devoted themselves to fellowship. This is the Greek word koinonia. Much more is implied here than coffee and donuts on a Sunday morning. Um, koinonia is actually a marriage word. It's a family word. It's a put everything in common together word. It's a financial partnership word. This is a business word as well. You would go into koinonia with somebody to uh, advance a business project. Paul, receiving a gift of money from the Philippians, says, I appreciate your koinonia. I appreciate your partnership with me in advancing the gospel. I appreciate your sharing with me. Notice here in, in verse 45, if you, um, or 44, they, they believed they were together. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions, verse 45, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, so, I mean, don't get nervous here. That's not communism, okay, right? I know we live in an era where it's worse to be a communist than it is a heretic, right? Which confuses me, um, but this is not a government program, okay? Um, this is not mandatory. This is voluntary. In fact, I mean, they're still have houses, right? They're still owning things. But what's happening is they are committing to each other as a group. They are adopting one another as family and saying, we will protect and care for you. What's interesting about this is the sacrifice aspect of the support to me. It's a common life of sacrifice and support. They're not giving what they have extra, Does that make sense? They're not saying at the end of paying my bills this month, I have $50 extra. I'd like to give that to somebody in need. They're seeing a need and going, I don't need this piece of clothing. Let me get rid of it and I'll give you the money for it. 
It's sacrificial. Relationships by nature, right? I think that's one of the reasons most of us end up bailing on the church. Relationships are relational or sacrificial by nature. To be in a relationship means you will sacrifice your time. I don't know if you know this, but people in relationships with you don't always ask for things that are convenient. Sometimes they need your attention at times when you would not like to give it to them. When you had other plans, other things going on. You have to sacrifice time. You sacrifice money to share with others. You sacrifice your desires as you compromise. You sacrifice. And the result is this koinonia, this common life, this loving. They are also a, a worshiping church. So they're devoted to the breaking of bread. This is a term for the Lord's Supper. For the, the meal that Jesus institutes in the upper room. And to prayers. They attend the temple together. Notice at this time, they, they don't see themselves as anything other than Jewish believers. They're going to the temple still. It will take them a while to, to think through the fact that maybe they don't belong at the temple anymore with the sacrificial system and all those things. But they're going to the temple. They're also going to their homes and they're praising God with joyful and generous hearts. Um, we could say there seems to be sacraments and celebration with this early group of church um, members, with this early life of the church. Sacraments would be uh, something we do, a physical act that Jesus has given us whereby which, through some, some means, we receive or acknowledge or testify to grace. Protestants um, hold to two sacraments traditionally, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, and then of baptism. Now, Eucharist in itself is an interesting term. It comes from the Greek um, root of to give thanks for or to praise. Notice um, the, the Christians are meeting on the first day of the week. Um, this is a, a very interesting thing that starts happening in the early church. Um, and it testifies to the fact that the early Christian, what we might call worship services, um, continual um, times of gathering, were marked by celebration. I did not actually know this. I was surprised by this um, studying this week. We have no evidence for the first few centuries of Christianity that the early Christians used the cross as a symbol in their worship. We, we, can't, we don't have artifacts of that. There's not drawings of that on like early Christian churches and walls and things like that. Part of the reason might be because if you're being persecuted, you're not quick to remind the leaders that your leader also was persecuted, right? You might want to downplay that a little bit. But part of the other reason is, think through, right? There's no gospel without the resurrection. The resurrection seems to be what forms these people. This new life, this celebration. Think through the, this radical idea that, that the Christians very quickly begin meeting on Sunday. It would make sense to them to keep meeting on the Sabbath. They were still going to the temple. They still thought they were Jews. It would also make sense to them to move worship to Friday. But they moved it to Sunday. They moved it to the first day of the week, the day of new creation, the day of Jesus being loosed from death and risen to God's right hand. They celebrated the resurrection as they met together. Um, so I, I would say in, in the church setting, there are two unforgivable sins for a group of people who meet together to celebrate the risen one. The first is that it would be dull. I think that's unforgivable. I think there, there's too much to be praising. There's too much to be excited about for it to be dull. For it to be normal, um, business as usual type thinking through like a normal person. They're celebrating, they're praising. Even in hardships, Paul would say, we don't mourn like people who have no hope. Even the way we go through troubles is different. Because there's one who's been risen and we celebrate. The second unforgivable sin um, might be the opposite um, side of the pendulum, um, which would be not only unforgivable, I think, to be dull, 
as people who meet together to celebrate, but also um, to be irreverent. So to kind of get together to entertain ourselves, right? Um, to, to just be so focused on excitement that we forget uh, the sacraments, that we forget the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus killed and raised again. Um, so we don't, right, we don't do rock shows. Uh, we don't get motorcycles on the stage and go round and around, right, like a circus. As if it's just one way we entertain ourselves among many during the week. I mean, it's a reverent praising the God of all creation for redeeming and remaking the world. And then the last thing you'll see here, um, they continue to grow. It's a learning, it's a loving, it's a worshiping, it's a growing church. As they got together and not held seeker-sensitive services, as they praised and passionately pursued the Lord, they had favor with all the people, and their numbers were growing daily and daily and daily. And this is the life of the early church. I was reading an article this week, we'll wrap it up, um, <clears throat> that was on Dekaiosune uh, Theyu, um, this Greek phrase that means righteousness of God. It was one of those articles... Um, you might not be aware of this, right? It's like 100 pages of like just the most boring, dull stuff. You read a paragraph of it, you're like, who would ever care about this? Like, how does this make any difference to anybody in the entire world, right? This real technical argument over this little Greek phrase. It's written by a guy named Kaisemon, Ernst Kaisemon, and, and I'm reading it, trying to just drudge through it, right? And, and I get to this phrase that was unexpectedly devotional. And he, he has this thing in there. He says, the Christian life should be seen as a constant returning to baptism, we talked about baptism last week, this confession, Jesus is my Lord. And so I walk away from a commitment to and a life of sin. And I, again, daily profess my allegiance to him, that he owns me, he defines me, he has me, he's bought me, he's saved me. In fact, this is something Luther would used to say, right? He, when he was tempted, he would remind himself of this. It seems foreign to us, but he would say, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. When he doubted his salvation, know what he remembered? I went into the water I came out. I've been united with Christ. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful thought. And then I thought, this, this little passage here, as, as Luke takes a step back and, and breathes a little bit and gives us a survey of what's happened, maybe this functions for the church as baptism does for the individual. Maybe this is what we should constantly be looking back at and returning to and evaluating our life next to. Are we a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, a growing church? Are we learning, despite all the odds, to find our identity in a community, a community of those being saved and redeemed? One of the things I'm I'm hoping we'll get from the study of the book of Acts is this sense, this rich sense that you and I belong in a huge company of people. That we take our place on the stage, the same stage that Peter stood on on the day of Pentecost. And we take our place as a church the same way this church took their place and praised and worshipped and grew. The early Christians, um, uh, after a while, started meeting in catacombs in these funeral sites. Um, and possibly they did this because um, they were allowed to be a, own property as a funeral community, but not as a religious community. And so they might have done that loophole, right, to earn some property. Um, they might have done it to escape persecution. But we do know for sure one of the reasons they did this was because they thought that when they were baptized... They stepped in line with the saints of old. And they worshipped with those who would soon be raised from the ground and joined them in worship. They took their place on a stage that did not start with them and would not end with them. But they had a rich history, a rich tradition of people loving and growing and maturing 
and a faith that finds its home and community. So we'll end with just a question and maybe a challenge, okay? Um, could we maybe take a few moments today or this week to run through learning, loving, worshiping, growing, and evaluate, critique it ourselves, okay? Um, maybe both individually, am I learning? Am I loving? Am I growing? Am I worshiping? I would say, though, when we do that, avoid being individualistic and consumeristic. And then maybe you and I as FC cubed, are we learning and loving and worshiping and growing? Then I would ask you as your pastor, if you um, take some time this week to do that, shoot me an email. My email's on here. Many of you have my cell number, right? Give me a call. Maybe we've got to get coffee, something like that. Let's talk about it. I would love to hear your thoughts on where you are and then, and then where you believe our church is, right? I mean, I, I, I don't think um, we stand up to the church and acts perfectly. I think just like every day of I, I have to return to my baptism, so you and I as a church have to continually go back to what is this community? What should we be doing and pursuing? But just like this early community, I think we find ourselves shaped and transformed by the grace of God. And so Luke steps back, takes a breath, paints us a scene, and then when chapter 3 hits, we'll pick it up next week, we're off again. So catch your breath, okay? And we'll hit the, we'll hit the treadmill again next week. Let, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our, our time this morning. Thank you for the scriptures you've given us. I pray that as we follow and serve you, we would find our place in this great story that you have started, um, this um, group of people that we find ourselves brought into, maybe without even knowing it. Maybe we accidentally find ourselves in this great family, this rich, beautiful group of people following and serving you, Father. I pray that as we live life together in common, that you would... Allow us to join on your mission, that you would allow us to witness to Jesus' victory, and that you would allow us to have the Spirit work mightily in our hearts, that we would find you and love you and know you more and more, Father. It's in your Son's crucified and risen name that all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.